It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. This show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes, and we have a blog which someday will be updated at filmsociology.tumblr.com. Join me in studio, fellow IFJA member, film yap man, and uh, indie style man, and wearing the near master's green jacket, Christopher Lloyd. How are you, sir? Very good to be here. Glad to have you here. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a season, we are in post-Oscar time. Um, I know you can still... Moonlight, I believe, is still in theaters. There is now a sing-along edition of La La Land up at the Keystone Arts. There's a 15-year-old in my house that really wants to experience that. But we've also had a, f- a, a flood of, of decent films. There has not been a, a dumping ground, which we're kind of used to after the Oscars and before summer blockbuster season. But we've had Logan, the, uh, the Unforgiven of the uh, uh, Marvel films. We've had Get Out, the Stepford Wives meets uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, fun horror film. Fun thriller there. And uh, an opening this weekend is Kong Skull Island, which we'll get to in a little bit. But, uh, but Chris, have you been enjoying the uh, the post-Oscar uh, cool down? I have. And the fact that it's not really cooling down. You know, we were talking about how the fact that we used to have this the, sort of the two seasons of film per year. There was the summers. You had the, your big budget spectacles. And then you had, like, your, you know, pro- prestige dramas in November and December and that kind of carried you over in the Oscar season. And then, you know, other than those big films trickling out to the hinterlands, you know, it was pretty dead in January, February, March, April, and then bang, finally May, things would pick up. And that we've really kind of gone away for that. We're seeing big movies coming out in, like, September and October, and now here we have three big-budget films in a row coming out in March. There's also with Beauty and the Beast, live-action version coming out this week. So I, I like it. I like the fact that, you know, after say like this is the time for small films and this is the time for these films. Why can't we have a big action spectacle, two hundred million dollar picture in March? And it's probably going to happen, and it is happening. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I think also the fact that it uh, there you won't have a number of big budget films. I know, like July Fourth is a big uh, tentpole date, and and some you know some big films going to get lost by the wayside. Just like there are certain uh, award contending films. That uh, get delayed or pushed away to maybe get bigger exposure in, say, February or April or September. So, yeah, for the prestige pictures, the worry is that if you don't come out at the end of the year, people won't remember you by the time it's the time to vote for nominations, which there's something to that. Um, but again, we're seeing that, you know, more and more getting away from that 
Um, I think that may have actually the getting away for that even started about 25 years ago when uh, Silence of the Lambs yep. came out in late January or early February um, and went on to, you know, run the Oscars the next year. That's, that's a, you're so funny because we were talking a few months back when we were having our big uh, discussion, a big IFJA meeting, by the way. That needs to be broadcast. That's that's a Bravo <laughs> moment waiting to happen. But but I know more than one critic talked about um, the potency of Hell or High Water, which was an August release. Yeah. And for a couple of critics, they asked the question every, when they saw a, a new film that they liked, was it better than Hell or High Water? And and you know it was either yes or no. Imagine doing that with Silence of the Lambs back in January. For, yeah. the, for the rest of 1991, you're like, is this better than this? Is it better than that? Speaking of which, the IFGA also gave our Best Picture Film Award to Moonlight. Yes. Uh, and it happened more or less the way that did it the Oscars is that it wasn't really being talked about, wasn't really being vocally supported, all of that. People kind of like, you know, it's a general sort of like for it, and then boom, it just won. What also happened at the IFGA, Warren Beatty also threw Faye Dunaway under the bus. So <laughs> that, that also, he did it everywhere, folks. Don't worry about that. It's his uh, MO. It is. Oh, boy. So, all right. With that in mind, moving on. So we, we talked about, yeah, Get Out and Logan are still in theaters. See them in the theater. See them on a big screen. See them with a crowd if you can. Yeah. Um, I My daughter and I wound up seeing Get Out on a Monday night, which probably wasn't the, the best move. But I still enjoyed it even if I didn't have a rowdy Friday or Saturday night crowd. And I know there is something to be said about that. But I've also seen films that have had standing ovations in the theater and I thought were complete junk or times that I've been the only one in the theater and have thoroughly enjoyed a picture because part of it is seeing it at either 10 p.m. on Thursday night or 10 a.m. Friday morning. Um, and, and there is something about the added experience, but um, I still, like I said, I still enjoyed Get Out even though there were like nine other people in the theater. Yeah, I, I like to see uh, uh, um, certain movies, like if you're seeing like a good drama that, that's not. I might want to see it like, with like you know, like a one third full or a half full theater. Comedies I think do well from having more people. Uh, although if you have too many, then they they laugh over the next joke and you miss jokes. I hate that. That's my mother. That was my mother's biggest complaint about going to the movies with my father and I. Yeah, because we laughed during a comedy. Yeah. How dare we? <laughs> And we kept trying to explain. Usually the first couple lines after something funny is kind of throwaway sometimes. Didn't care. She Didn't care. She did not care. All right. Um, but opening in theaters, Kong Skull Island. Now, this is from Warner Brothers, who, of course, gave us the, the, what I call the grown-up version of Godzilla a few, uh, few years ago, which I, I really enjoyed. It was fun watching grown-up because it, it was, it was a, a film that took itself seriously. And rightly so. You also had name actors like Brian Cranston, Juliette Binoche, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Ken Watanabe, all sweating big time. It, and it was fun to watch them sweat. I always think, I'm, I, the other one I always think of, of really acting hard in a disaster movie because we're used to Paul Newman and William Holden and Steve McQueen kind of phoning it in a little bit with the Irwin Allen films in the 70s. But, like, watching Chiwetel Ejiofor in 2012. Yeah. Like, man, you were just really working hard. And and that happened in Godzilla. Kong, Kong Skull Island is kind of Godzilla's younger, goofier brother. Yeah. With, with just a, a really good cast. And they're also working it. But it, it, you were saying earlier, it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, totally. It's just a weird, weird film. It's just an, it's an, it's an, it's an odd little bird, uh, because you just have. I mean, it's not just doing like those little quips that you'll have in action movies to sort of lighten the mood. There, there are, you know, they're they're just going for the laughs. There are absolute comedic sequences in this, 
And then those will be interspersed with really gruesome, uh, you know, beheadings and dismemberments and, you know, CGI, you know, uh, eviscerations. As I said to somebody, this is probably the hardest PG-13 rated movies I've ever seen. We need to make that list. The, the hardest the, one. The hardest PG-13 films. But I had somebody online ask me about taking their four-year-old, and I went, oh, no, 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 no. Well, normally I, I always say, because my daughter was an exception to the rule, but I always, when somebody asks me about advice on taking their kid to a film, my first question is always, what's the harshest thing the kid has experienced? Yeah. And um, they saw Godzilla. They saw the Godzilla a few years ago and liked it, but the kid got freaked out at Sharknado. Yeah. And I said, okay, that's that. I'm not going to question your parenting skills. You took him to Sharknado. <laughs> but, um, and I said... And you know there were some there were some flattened scenes and 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 that sort of thing. And I said, no, I think that's going to be it's going to be a bit much. It also helps maybe uh, there's there's a lot of creature violence. So yeah. there is blood, but it's not red. Yeah, you don't see like a person torn apart. No. Um, like I'll say, I mean, I'll say you, you do literally see one guy torn apart, but it's literally done in a distance from in silhouette. So right. you know, it's almost got like a, a you know kabuki theater type of feel to it. Look at um, you dropping Kabuki at NPR. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, it is a strange film, but I re- I was surprised. I really liked it. I I, I did not think I would. Um, you know, we had you know Godzilla and King Kong are the two big white whales of cinema, in, in that their first iterations were amazing classics, and since then they've been trying to recapture it in a bottle, and most of them have been terrible. And you know, in American cinema, at least, you know, Godzilla's been you know more Japanese. Godzilla is, you know, about every 12 years we get a new, 12 to 15 years we get a new Godzilla movie. And it's been about 12 years since Peter Peter Jackson did his, uh, which not too many people liked. So here it is, and it's just, it's almost like, okay, and we're going to forget all about what we did from last time and, and reboot them and show you the same stuff. And this one really didn't do that, you know. Uh, first of all, King Kong never gets to New York. He never climbs the Empire State Building. And, and by the way, Brie Larson is a favorite. I, you would climb a building with with uh, Brie Larson. Yeah, but she is n- totally not a damsel in distress. She does not declothe at any point in the and, movie. And she has great hair. Her and Tom Hiddleston have the best hair yeah. in an action sequence. So action she, she plays, this is set in 1973 at the end of the uh, Vietnam War, and she is an anti-war photojournalist. Her words. Who, who takes a job uh, to go document this thing. And he is a British ex-Special Forces explorer rescuer guy with suspiciously <laughs> tight t-shirts and frosted highlights uh and they're put together with like a bunch of egghead scientists and a bunch of uh military military helicopter uh, crew led by samuel l jackson and john goodman is the um uh is the guts and glory commander who wants to you know Make it personal with Kong, and yeah. it's just really, there, there, there is a face-off between yes, ladies and gentlemen, between Samuel L. Jackson and Kong. Kong, uh, and I should mention, you know, King Kong, you know, has grown in stature with his legend. So, I mean, he was he was big before, but I mean, he's just you know supposed to be this gargantuan, like this sad god king, you know, like out of mythology, lumbering around his hidden island, and as I put him, you know, climb the Empire State Building, dude is. The Empire State Building. That's how big he is in the movie. And Chris, thank you for clarifying that. I was going to bring up that line. I went, "Who wrote that?" I went, "Oh, you did. That's good." Yeah, I, I had one of those review nights where, as they say, I I, uh, I didn't have time to write a short review, so I wrote a long one. Uh, and it's kind of a it's kind of a 
higgledy piggledy, but hopefully in an enjoyable way. Okay, you you brought up Kabuki Theater. Um, without giving away a whole lot, and I I know David Edelstein or or actually one of the NPR critics kind of complained about uh, about Kong Skull and but but there's an opening sequence. That's very. I was. I was immediately reminded of Hell in the Pacific. Yeah, Martin, yeah. Tashira Mifune, directed yeah. by John Borman. Those who know what I, the film we're talking about, you'll understand why. But um, yeah, there, there's a lot of parallels between Vietnam and and of course you know it's it's set in the Vietnam era because music by CCR is played. Yeah, they have two songs. John Fogarty's Angry. But um, so there's there's a lot of the uh, should we should we or shouldn't be we be fighting as you mentioned earlier. Samuel L. Jackson's going to win a war this time, even if it's uh, up against uh, King Kong's got nothing on Sam Jackson. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, so you also have John Goodman, and there's also a fun one-scene moment with Richard Jenkins. Apparently he left his razor at home playing a politician to help finance this expedition. But it is it is the stock characters. It is, you know, you have this myriad of, of characters all on this mission. And then we get to the island itself. And, and so one of the rules that apparently is broken, and it, hap- well, it, it happened, the rule was followed in Godzilla where you don't see the title character until about an hour into the film. That sort of happens here, except for an early scene, which I don't want to give away, and I already did. But um, so you have these characters we've seen before. There, yeah, as you said, there there's some fun moments, there's some light moments, there's also some, yeah, some. I mean, there's some pretty disturbing aspects of this. Um, I, I will say, uh, helicopters are played with like toys, and and so that's out there. Um, but yeah, it was it was just it was just a good time watching this. It, it, again, it's a little intense, and and I th- obviously there are some films with kids that you know if you see it on a giant screen, it's terrifying. But if you watch it in the comfort of your home on your on your television screen, it should be okay. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, I should mention here that the, this film was directed by a guy. His only other. Um, uh, feature film that he's directed was a little indie film that came here through Indie Film Fest about three four years ago called The Kings of Summer. Uh, Jordan Voigt Roberts is his name. So this is the only other movie he made. Little one point five million dollar coming of age comedy, and then boom, he's handed a hundred ninety million dollar budget for Kong. That had to have been a hell of a pitch. That that well, Peter Jackson was originally supposed to direct, uh, and then apparently somebody actually watched his previous King Kong movie. Uh, and then Guillermo del Toro was going to take uh. his place, which I bet him and Guillermo and Peter Jackson seemed this weird thing like, I'll direct a movie. No, I'll direct a movie. No, nobody will direct a movie. See, at the very, I, okay, so Peter Jackson should be known, of course. Peter Jackson made a good two hour King Kong film. The problem is, of course, it was three hours. And I wish Guillermo had done it because then. Uh, Ball State alum and film sociology guest Doug Jones could have played Kong, and that would have been fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is uh, from a visual standpoint, and it's an expensive looking movie, but it looks cool. It was I just uh, Spenguli on MeTV just did a month of Godzilla films from the original, well, the the original American version with Raymond Burr with the tagged on uh, sequences. As well as Godzilla's Revenge, the really weird one with the kid. Well, all, all the all the Japanese kids have way short pants, shorter than <laughs> shorter than the shorts in the NBA back in the seventies. And then like the the Godzilla kid, 
Um, so anyway, it's it, it's been fun. I think I'm good with monster movies for a while, at least at least Japanese monster movies. Well, if you do stick around to the very yes. end of Kong Skull Island, then you might have reason for disappointment. And I'll uh, so did, did you say there was a credit that kind of gave away its cookie? Maybe, maybe. So anyway, but it, anyway, if you enjoy this, again, it's not as it's not as dark as Godzilla, but it's just as intense. But it's I think it's worth checking out on yeah, the big screen. I, I think they also made the right, right choice of you know you, you get a good look at Kong right at the beginning, and then yeah, and then he shows up. I don't think it's even an hour. I think it's maybe about thirty five minutes before you know the he's he's batting at Huey Huey helicopters. Um, that was my big problem with Godzilla of two thousand fourteen was. You did not get a glimpse of the beastie until halfway through, which, as I said, that's like manufacturing a sports car with a top speed capable of 180 miles per hour, but it takes three minutes to get from zero to 60. You know, you you, you cannot, you know, this is a sports car type of movie, and you cannot take that long to, you know, hit your high point. Gearhead Chris Lloyd over here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, how is the car? Which one? The one you've been working on since day one. Uh, the Cadillac. Yes, uh, the Cadillac. Yeah, it's it's in the shop. Um, uh, that's kind of what I could have said for going back for 15 months now. Uh, I've had the car in my possession since I bought it for about maybe five weeks. Okay. Uh, however, good news is I've found a guy who specializes in old Cadillacs, and he's says he's capable of fixing two issues that no one else has been able to touch. Um, and the bad news is it requires all of my money. No. <laughs> get, a, get, a, get an underwriter from that guy. <laughs> Pay that off. All right. Um, so Kong Skull Island is opening this week. And by the way, Tom Hiddleston, Brie Larson, great hair throughout all of this. And there is a there is a scene. There's a little continuity thing that just kind of cracked this up. But there's a scene near the end where Brie Larson's character falls into a big body of water. And then we get to the next scene where they're back on the boat, not with Colonel Kurtz. not with, Although John C. Riley is more Dennis Hopper than Marlon yeah. Brando in this. And then there's the next scene, and she is bone dry. dry. So... But yeah, it, it's enjoyable. You you think we'll like it, and also the fact that I think you know Brie Larson got very little money for doing Room, her big you know her big Oscar winner, and got ridiculous amounts of money to do this film. Kind of like watching Tom Hiddleston do the Crown series, but he's getting the money for this, so yeah. we we enjoy that. Yeah, I should mention this is an ensemble cast. There's no main character, and this Kong is really the main really, character. Yeah. So, and anyway, it's it's out there. It's worth checking out. Now, Chris also saw two smaller films that opened uh, this weekend. And uh, one of which, and I, I kept forgetting the title. The first thing I kept thinking was, it's not this. It's not the Otterman Weekend. It's it, not a Robert Ludlum novel turned into a Sam Peckinpah film about a killer piece of furniture. What is it now? It's the Ottoman Lieutenant. Uh, not the bad lieutenant, and not and it's not Dick Van Dyke tripping over it. Yeah, it's got kind of a 1970s film title. Um, but it's 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 a uh, it's a World War One romance drama. Uh, oh, Bianca's still there. Uh, and the way I describe it is, it's sort of it's got the look and feel of a Merchant Ivory production, you know, Howard's End, oh, yeah. Room of the View, uh, but a much more overtly soap opera ish tone. So it, you know, uh, I did I did like the star because she's kind of pretty much a newcomer uh, to lead roles. Uh, is uh, Hera Hilmar plays the main character Lily, and she is a uh, spunky proto-feminist in 1914 Philadelphia 
who uh, meets a dashing young doctor played by Josh Hartnett. And yes, this movie answers the question, whatever happened to Josh Hartnett? It has been a while since we've seen Josh. He's, he's been working, but he's been doing small movies like this. Okay. Uh, who uh, helps run a mission hospital in what is now Turkey, the Ottoman Empire at the time, along with Ben Kingsley plays the dissolute uh, uh, co-founder uh, who uh, puts himself to sleep with drugs every night. Is he English in this one? Uh, I think he's supposed to be also American. Oh, well, that's uh, okay. But uh, so she uh, decides to, uh, using her inheritance, to, to donate a truck and medical supplies, which, of course, she's got to accompany it herself to make sure it gets there okay. And then she volu- ends up volunteering as a nurse and also meets uh, Ismael, who is a young lieutenant in the Ottoman Empire, played by uh, Michel Husman who uh, looks very Arabic, uh, also plays an Arabic type of character in the Game of Thrones, and is from the Netherlands. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, and so you can kind of, you know, just based on that, uh, you know, you know, get like the, the, the romance novel novel tagline, you know, she was caught between two worlds and two lovers. Is 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 she the grandmother of Brie Larson's character? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not a bad movie. Like I say, I mean, it's very beautifully shot. Um, Joseph Rubin directed it uh, from original screenplay by Jeff Stockwell, uh, and I enjoyed I enjoyed the look and feel of it. Um, it's you know utterly predictable from beginning to end, but I really like the the look and feel of it. Ahira Hilmar, I think, is definitely someone for us to to sort of watch in the future. So go check that one out. And then there is also, and I, I can hear the squeals from the fifteen year old at home. There is a documentary involving cats, is not it- the musical. Actual felines. Is it, is it pronounced Kedai or Kedai? I don't actually know. We'll call the whole thing off. <laughs> yeah, it's set in Istanbul. Another two Turkish movies. Hey, take, hey take that, all right? Take, yeah. guess, guess what? A, gay, a film about gay issues won Best Picture, and a film from Iran won Best Foreign Film. Now we have two Turkish films. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, and it's true that in Istanbul they have this sort of culture where they don't round up stray cats. They sort of, you know communally they adopt them and feed them and take care of them not to mention brian setzer lee rocker yeah and so this is it's, it's the story it's, it's sort of like a travelogue of istanbul through the eyes of cats so if you want to get out of the house and take a break from youtube looking at photos of cats doing weird things this sounds like it's right up your alley yeah uh okay so those those are the films that are out there um but but there are other options so over at the uh, Historic Art Craft Theater in Franklin, Indiana, this weekend. Now, of course, this all depends on when you're listening to this show. If you're listening Saturday morning, hi, thank you. Hope you hope you have a choice. If you're listening on Monday, well, yeah, go see something on Monday night. But um, at two o'clock and seven thirty p.m. today, Saturday, well, on the tenth and the eleventh, at the Historic Art Craft Theater, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh. I would so love to see that on the big screen. I got to see it on the big screen in Chicago, oh gosh, 20 years ago. This was before Lynn and I got married. And uh, yeah, any chance to see a Hitchcock film on the big screen, especially one of the good ones, um, that's worth checking out. And of course, you know, with the art craft, it's an old school theater look and feel. And, you know, the snark things like I wish the popcorn was still 10 cents, but it's not. But that that's definitely worth checking out on a big screen. Yeah, Vertigo is one of my all-time favorite films, certainly my favorite Hitchcock film. And it, it's an interesting movie because, you know, when it came out, it really was not well thought of. It was sort of, you know, the one in between North by Northwest and Psycho. Wow. Um, and it's, it's just grown and grown and grown, in, in uh, especially critics and academics view. And I believe the, that whatever it was, you know, people that do that annual poll of critics – 
and film historians of the greatest film ever, Sight and Sound. I forget who does it. But there's um, always those. Yeah, the the last one around, Vertigo actually knocked off Citizen Kane for the number one spot. Wow. We're which, still waiting for our applications, by the way, but that's okay. It's right. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not going to you know knock Citizen Kane as a piece of art of uh, art and film history, but I would watch Vertigo a thousand times in the, a row forcibly, <laughs> like the guy with his eyes propped open in a Clockwork Orange, than than watch. Uh, uh, that's a little bit of exaggeration. Uh, let's put this way: I much prefer Vertigo to to Citizen Kane. Okay, here's a question, um, and one day I'm going to just do a whole. But Vertigo would Vertigo be a good first movie date a first Oof. date movie because it's a little it's a little creep you know <laughs> he's a little controlling a little <laughs> a li- to say the least that's with a capital l as far as uh what what jimmy stewart does to kim novak in the second half of the film um there are and, and uh, so anyway i put it's, it up it's a really weird psychologically kinky movie i mean i, I love jimmy stewart movies from the 50s because it was like he, you know, he's getting a little older, had to, having to take different roles in the movies, and he really just did, I think, some of his most ambitious, weird stuff in the fifties and into the early sixties. Uh, and this is probably has to be where he plays like, you know, a, a you know, a police lieutenant or detective or whatever he is, you know, normal guy, bachelor, typical Hitchcockian hero, uh, who just, you know, becomes obsessed with this woman and becomes obsessed with things like clothes and hair. And, you know, I mean, I think if that film had been made in, like, 1968 instead of 1958, you know, the next step would have been, like, you know, instead of trying to dress her up in a certain way, he starts dressing up in a certain way. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, a weird, wonderful, deep, deep psychological dig type of movie. So maybe not the maybe not a first date film, but it's no, a, I mean, a solid one nonetheless. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't think any woman could could walk out of that without having some fears honey, about that, how, if she has a male significant other, how he would regard honey, her. Honey, that's you and me in a couple hours. And yeah. that's usually that's usually a crack for something like nine and a half weeks. Um, there's a group of guys in Richmond that I, I hang out with, and we, we watch movies together. I'm, I'm the baby of the group. These guys are retired. But speaking of Jimmy Stewart in the 50s. Um, we're, we are retiree aspirants. Yes, right. But um, I had never seen No Highway in the Sky. Hmm, I don't think I have either. It's, it's from the 20th Century Fox Archive Edition, and we'll get into, into the archives in a little bit. Uh, I like to. It's my version of reeling behind, reeling back. But um, it's him and Marlena Dietrich. He is, what? <laughs> reeling behind is the porn version. I'm not. I'm not answering that. Um, we don't talk about that here at NPR. Uh, but but no, this is one where he is an eccentric engineer, and he's he's a widower, and he's got a nice kid, and he develop he helps develop airplanes, and he's convinced that a particular type of metal used for uh, airplanes at this time is going to fall apart, and and it, it becomes very tense while the fl- plane is in flight. So mm. we have we have freaking out Jimmy Stewart in the air. And uh, again, if it helps that maybe it's Jimmy Stewart. If it was a schlub like myself, then yeah, it, it kind of like Vertigo. It'd be, it would look a little more off, uh, upsetting. I think. Is he designer or the pilot in this? Yeah, uh, the designer. Okay, the designer. It, it does ring a bell now. And uh, it's it's so he's in, Jack Hawkins is in it as well. And uh, it's it's a it's a nice little film. And uh, Dietrich plays a, a movie star who uh, meant a lot. Whose, whose films meant a lot to Stewart's character as well as his wife's. Anyway, it's it was one I had not seen. It was like oh, and it's from the guy who directed um, 
the uh, German director Henry Koster, who directed Stuart the year before in Harvey, hmm. and directed Stuart a few times. Anyway, that uh, so yeah, Vertigo is happening. So don't take a first date, but take a date anyway to go check that out. Uh, March seventeenth and eighteenth at the Art Craft Theater is Clue, and apparently they're going to play all three endings. Maybe wow. so that is there. March twenty fourth and twenty fifth, the Philadelphia Story, also worth seeing on the big screen. Also, one of my favorite physical comedy bits of all time is Cary Grant grabbing Katherine Hepburn by the face and throwing her to the ground. Not the throwing gr- ground part, the face grabbing part. It's It just makes me laugh to this day. And then April 7th and 8th, the Tim Burton Film Festival at the Art Craft. Here's here's your lineup. Emma's already marked. Uh, hopefully, this. all pre pre two thousand. Well, here you go. Um, Seven thirty p.m. Friday, April seventh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh. Ten p.m. April seventh, Batman. Saturday, uh, th- uh, three p.m. April eighth, Corpse Bride. Five p.m. April eighth, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Seven thirty p.m. April eighth, Beetlejuice. And ten p.m. April eighth, Mars Attacks. Mars That's a good lineup. Uh, I think that was, except for Corpse Bride, I think that was everything was pre-2000. There you go. Uh, April 14th and 15th, Showboat. Um, April 21st, it's a all-ages, real-women, vintage wine event of The Notebook. Um, cartoons for Cans on the 22nd. And April 22nd at 7.30 p.m., 21 and over only, The Big Lebowski. This is time for my uh, my oft confessions of movies I'm supposed to have seen but I've never seen. Uh oh, never seen Harvey. Oh, ne- never seen Clue. Oh, never seen any of the versions of Murder on the Orient Express, which I guess I'm going to have to because there's a new one coming out. Yep, now. Kenneth Branagh's working on that. Um, of course, you know my big one is The Sound of Music. I, I watched, attempted to watch it, and got to about 20 minutes in and, still and couldn't do it. Not okay. I, I do have it in my Netflix queue. I'm determined to try and, and grunt through it, but uh... <laughs> begrudgingly. Uh, okay, over at IU Cinema, again, this depends on when you're listening to this show. Um, three o'clock, Saturday, March 11th, as a part of the Elvis and Hollywood series from 1961, Blue Hawaii. Oh, yeah. The, the superior Elvis and Hawaii films. You can throw away Paradise Hawaiian style, nobody needs that junk. Um, this is the one that also cracks me up because Angela Lansbury plays Elvis's mother. She was nine and still recovering from giving birth to Lawrence Harvey in the Manchurian Candidate. Um, he is a, he is the son of a wealthy businessman who just wants to be on his own and live his own life and play rock and roll music on the beach because that's what Elvis would do in 61. And there's a fun moment of I was watching this at home and my wife is at her at her laptop as as our, as I like to call it doing Lynn things and she hears Lansbury come into the scene and kind of looks up and watches it and she goes off and I of course went Angela Lansbury ladies and gentlemen and she goes even she can't make this crap sound good <laughs> that's my wife uh 6:30 p.m. Saturday March 11th at IU Cinema as a part of the Scorsese's Men of Faith series the documentary George Harrison Living in the Material World that's pretty cool. Very, very cool. Yeah, enjoy that a great deal. Um, Sunday, March 12th, uh, Julieta, for you El Moldovar fans. Uh, less weird Pedro El Moldovar film, but a, a I think, a, and this is a compliment. Uh, this is a proper use of the term melodrama. Yeah. Of, uh, of a woman uh, thinking back at her past, especially uh, her estranged daughter and how the relationship kind of became estranged. But uh, yeah. really good stuff there. 
Uh, Dearest from 2013. This is part of the China Remix series. Monday, March 20th, Jailhouse Rock at 3 p.m. One of probably top five of the Elvis films. Um, wish he had done more choreography like he did in this. Um, from 2016, at 7 p.m., Monkey King Hero is back. Uh, sun, Tuesday, March 21st, a lecture from David Gatton at 3 p.m. and The Extravagant Shadows at 6.30 p.m. Wednesday, March 22nd, the 1969 documentary High School. Thursday, March 23rd, as a part of the China Remix series from 2005 at 7 p.m., The Straight Story, not the David Lynch film. And then uh, Professor Zheng Zhang lecture at 3 p.m. on Friday, March 24th, and The Love of Mr. An uh, at 7 p.m. on March 24th. And then Tony Erdman, March 25th. Did that play here? The uh, That was the German three-hour comedy? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was screened for us. Yeah, there was this a uh, morph. I'm not sure. Was it screened for us? I, I think I just got a DVD. We just got a DVD. It was. Screener. It was screened. Well, it, there was a press oh, screening right. of it, and I could not attend. So, so I think it did eventually open here then, because okay. they wouldn't have screened it for the press here unless it was actually going to come to a theater. Well, that's great. We were not high enough on their priority list. We're, we're trying, folks. We're really trying to get India on the film map. Our part of it. Okay. Um, you're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point, WFYI.org. Matthew Sosi here hanging out with Chris Lloyd of the Film Yap. Um, if you go to the video store, you're in for a good week. This is a very solid week because you have two really good titles that came out on home video this week. Uh, Criterion put out a film from uh, 2015 that I'm still thinking about, um, but we'll get to them. Uh, of course, the big one is uh, Moana. Uh, a Disney animated film that's more about uh, female empowerment, more Mulan than, say, fill in the name of Disney princess here. Um, but good, unlike Mulan. <laughs> he said it, not me. Uh, but yeah, uh, Polynesian island, Pacific Island story, um, girl who's trying to uh, maintain her, may, get her sense of responsibility and independence among the family. Dwayne Johnson basically gets to be his version of the genie as the yeah. uh, sidekick rogue, can't trust him, but he's likable. And uh, I have to give props to Dwayne because he's not wrestling now. But uh, but uh, when we saw this film, and Dwayne Johnson has a song. It's called You're Welcome. And I, and I was really hoping it would get a Best Song nomination so he could perform it at the Oscars, but that's never really stopped the Academy. And he presented, and he did like two lines from the, two you know, two sentences from the song and and offered his services, and he, he said the Academy said no. Yeah. So good good sense of humor. But anyway, it's very colorful, a lot of fun. Lynn manuel uh, does some of the music. Um, doesn't get to be the youngest EGOT, but anyway, it is a lot of fun nonetheless. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. It was my second favorite um, animated film from last year. I liked it because, you know, it wasn't – it has those messages about um, the, the girl and the and sort of eschewing the princess story traditional. There's an important point in the version, you know, she humorously denies being a princess. And uh, Maui, the demigod played by Dwayne Johnson, says, if you're wearing a dress and you have an animal sidekick, you're a princess. Right. So uh, it, it does poke fun at that. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it sort of you know it takes you know pieces of uh, Polynesian mythology and mix them up with you know uh, actual native music, but also with sort of you know the Broadway feel to it. Um, and you know I, I like the fact that it's a movie without a real discernible villain. 
I mean, it's hard to point to one character who is, you know, irrevocably evil throughout the whole story. Well, that being said, my uh, my my buddy Stacy Studeville tells me her daughter is still terrified by the lava monster. So yeah. there there is it is not a is not in human form, but there is a uh, there is an antagonist, and it's the big lava monster. Yeah, but and you could also say in some ways Maui is the antagonist. You could also say that Tamator, the big crab, is also true. So, so like there are antagonistic themes but, in the movie, but, but it's not of a Jafar. Yes, like Jafar, there he is. He's the bad guy yeah, right. and a sidekick. Um, so I, I really loved it. A terrific film. Uh, also out is uh, is I'm one at I remember uh, having big buzz about it when it's when when I first saw it and then it kind of whittled away. But I still liked it. Nonetheless, was uh, was Jackie with uh, Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy, kind of the behind the scenes of what, uh, according to this film, what Jackie Kennedy went through after President Kennedy was shot, and the film gives her much more credit as far as having an influence on how the post assassination period in not just her life but in the country's life how she even little details as far as handling the funeral and how she was going to be around the white house and it's a really solid performance from natalie portman because and they're really except for maybe the footage of the tour of the white house there is no real footage of jackie kennedy so she kind of had a blank canvas to work with and it's it's haunting at times. It's uh, magnetic at times. The score is really good if it weren't for La La Land. Yeah. Um, <clears> e- <throat> even... Michael Levi, I believe, did the score. Right. Like very atonal type of non-melodic. Yeah. Not, and not period. I mean, it's it's music from today. Uh, but anyway, it was just a fascinating performance from Portman. And I think if it weren't for Emma Stone, I think she would probably have a, a second statue in her in her shelf. Yeah, I had some problems with the movie. It's, it's a very amazing film to look at. Very well shot. Um, uh, the soundtrack, as you mentioned, and of, of course her acting. Uh, I should also mention the costumes. It got an Oscar nomination for best costumes, and one of the rare movies that you can point to where the the costumes are really a, you know almost our our character in the movie because you know she's wearing the infamous you know uh, pink outfit and then changes some other things, and the the costumes very much play a role um, in the movie. My my problems with it there's like like too much of you know like the movie being self aware and putting putting it in front of us you know there's a part where like Peter Sarsgaard who's playing uh is he playing Bobby Kennedy I'm trying to remember who he's yes. playing that you know where he you know he, he basically just sort of like blurting out the themes of the movie like you know were we just the beautiful people uh that and I hate I hate when movies you know sort of just you know just vomit out their themes right there and you know say it out loud or uh, I, I think it was one of my good friends Ben Rock who's in the movies now says I, I you know like if you have like a, a title of a movie I hate when a character in the movie says the title of the movie well it's hard to do with Jackie really yeah just, uh... but yeah definitely, uh, definitely you know, a very interesting it, one of those films that you know like allied with Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard that kind of got lost during the award cycle mm-hmm. that I think are worth checking out um, and then Actually, no, I'm going to ask this because uh, I, I brought this. This has happened a couple times because I watched Allied last week. Another, I think another good use of the term melodrama uh, for, for Allied. Um, I really it, like that. I, 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 I You know, Robert Zemeckis directed another film. Great look, great costumes. I was, I was really sad that, that – I mean, it made some money, so I don't think anyone's crying. But, yeah, no. it kind of got lost. And and I think also even the the, the two moments of, of symbolism, there there is an intense love scene 
in a car as a sandstorm is flying over. Which they totally stole from the English patient. Yes. And then even funnier is Marion Cotillard's character giving birth outside under a battle sequence. Yeah. So, you know, you, you'd have thought George C. Scott would have come and just ripped the umbilical cord off himself if they put through Patton into the mix. Um, I watched Scarface, the, the Brian De Palma version, and, and I'll talk about that a little later on. But uh, but more than once watching the documentaries, the behind the scenes, the making of, use the term operatic, and and there is and, and especially with that it's saying it's basically it's a very bloody R-rated Faust tale, yeah. um, and I and I've used operatic to describe some of Coppola's films, uh, the Godfather's of course, but I even think something like The Outsiders, yeah. and One from the Heart. Do you know where the line is drawn between operatic cinema? And melodramatic cinema. Um, I don't know. Can you're, you think of examples of the, of the blur of a blurred line there? Well, I mean, to me, operatic is more a form, you, uh, whereas uh, melodrama is to me is more of a feeling. Okay, you know, uh, you know, something that's melodramatic is obviously very much, you know, appealing to our emotions in a very sort of conventional kind of a way. You know, like, you know, the, the idea is that we're supposed to be drawn into the experience because we can share that we, we may have had similar experiences and we, maybe we can draw some insight from what the character is having because maybe it is same or different from what we did. I, I think more operatic is more like grand with, you know, flourishes and, you know, you're trying to say something big um, as opposed to necessarily. I mean, you can do that that's in a, you know, melodramatic way. So I, I, I guess I would say is that an opera opera could be melodramatic, but I'm not sure if a melodrama could be operatic. Okay, I was um, th- that's, we have a degree. That's why I asked you. Uh, but also, I, for instance, I like um, the films of Todd Haynes are known yeah. as melodramatic. And I think he, he very explicitly is trying to recall like those films from the 1950s oh, or whatever. Oh, totally. And 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 that's fine. Again, use anytime I can use the term melodrama as a compliment. I think it's easy to do that as you know as a, as a dig if something is overwrought or you know we kind of laugh at the drama. Uh, but but films like Far from Heaven and Carol and even his his film version of uh, of Mildred Pierce. Um, he's able to use melodrama as a comp, you know, as as a style, as an acceptable style, and a compliment. So anyway, I was just that, curious about that. The the other film that is out on video and kudos for Criterion, and I also like it when Criterion picks a recent release. Um, although I do like when they when they when they dip back, but this was a film from 2015. It still resonates with me. I believe the actress was a runner up that year, but it's the uh, it's the marital drama 45 years. With a oh, great yeah, yeah, performance yeah, yeah. from Charlotte Rampling, she was not. She got an Oscar nomination for it. Tom Courtney, who, because she got all the awards, he kind of. I always think he's he's in the same he's in the same brunch with you know Peter Falk and a woman under the influence. I mean, he he, he should have gotten something for at least being a part a sparring partner in that. Yeah. Donald Sutherland and Ordinary People is the same way. Yeah. but it's a it's a couple. They're about they're planning their wedding anniversary celebration. The title. And we find out that a woman from his past, Courtney's past, they had uh, before he had met his wife, his Charlotte, the Charlotte Rampling character. He was hiking with his girlfriend. The girlfriend had an accident, fell off a cliff, and they never found the body. They find the body. Yeah. And then the film is. There are certain films where you're kind of just waiting for the the dramatic other shoe to fall. 
And it's so funny because Sam Watermaker was here last week and he was wearing his Foxcatcher shirt. That's an example of just waiting for the other shoe to fall. And that that's 45 years. You are waiting and you're slowly watching not only Charlotte Rampling, her character, but this marriage crumble apart. And it goes over a span of a week. And it's I think it's, it's absolutely mesmerizing. Yeah, it, it's an interesting film just because, you know, it's about the fact that she can't get past that he was completely obsessively in love with a woman other than her. And that the fact that, you know, that that this, you know, finding, you know, finding evidence of her death sort of reawakens her memory and her spirit in his mind. And it, it's almost like she feels like he's cheating on her with a dead person. Yeah. And uh and we get to the uh, the we get to a climax that we know is going to happen the anniversary party itself and then you're just it's really tense i mean there there have been wedding slash anniversary celebrations that have been very intense i think of uh Lars von Trier's breaking yeah. the waves and Michael Cimino's the deer hunter this one is in that as far as intense anniversary parties great use of the song smoke gets in your eyes by the drifters this is drifters right and then the very last song and anytime i hear it i always think of this film and that's go now by the moody blues yeah what was interesting in, in that movie is that there's there's actually like a uh a foreshadowing of that moment early in the film where another one of her female friends is talking to her about what happens at one of these types of events where the husband is expected to get up and make a toast to his wife and he's expected to break down in tears. And that, you know, like, you know, and, and she kind of like goes through and describes, and here's why that happens and why he must do it and why, if he, you know, he fails to break down in tears. That that tells you much about their relationship, and you know, and then of course we're sort of waiting on pins and needles of what's going to happen, and then of course with her character, and you know, I mean, for all we know, like she would get up and leave and walk out in the middle of his big speech, um, based on what's going on, on with them. Yeah. So this this is now out on video. Go find it. I mean, I, I mean, it, it it got a bit of an audience, but I wish this is one I wish if I if I ruled things, it would open in three thousand screens, but I don't. Um, Going into the arc, oh, there, there's a couple of other older titles, and the website I use, I'm always looking at older titles of note that come out on Blu-ray. I also don't know if they've just repackaged it for the yeah. third or fourth time. For instance, uh, you can now get on Blu-ray uh, Finian's Rainbow, a musical directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It was also Fred Astaire's last musical with uh, Tommy Steele and Petula Clark. Uh, odd, odd film. Um Blake Edwards SOB. Oh, if yeah. you want to see Julie Andrews, yeah, that's that's happening there. And from 1986, Dennis Hopper's Colors with uh, Sean Penn and Robert Duvall as cops in uh, South South Central Los Angeles. Strong stuff there. Um, I want to go into the archives a little bit. Uh, these are the films like uh, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, Universal, where you can only buy them in stores, or as Kobe used to say in college. Okay, he didn't say that. He was his character would be in college. I'll burn it for you for five bucks. <laughs> um, and this is kind of your 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 reeling series, but uh, a, a western from 1956, done by Warner Brothers. And I always wondered with westerns in the 50s, basically if John Wayne turned it down, was it open for anybody yeah. else? But apparently, this was written specifically for Robert Taylor. It's called The Last Hunt from 1956. It's Robert Taylor, Stuart Granger, and. It talks about 
the thinning of buffalo, the population of buffaloes in the United States, especially in the Dakotas. And this is set in the early 1880s, and they are just in the tail end of this, thus the title of the film. Uh, Taylor and Granger are two two cowpokes um, who, uh, two strangers who wind up going into business together to make another ride. Uh, of course, filling out the cast, everyone's favorite Native American actors, Russ Tamblin and Deborah Padgett. <laughs> And uh, apparently uh, Anne Bancroft was supposed to be the Deborah Paget character, and she got an injury, so Deborah sat in. And I guess the buffalo part is the one that's more interesting. There is actual footage of buffaloes being shot that is incorporated in. They, they acknowledge this at the beginning and at the end. Relax, PETA. It's 60 years ago. Um, and then we have these these myriad of characters with with basically some of the, some of the typical Western tensions, whether it's race, whether it's what to do right, what to do wrong, uh, what to do with the animals, each other's egos. So it's kind of run of the mill. And there's there are certain films. It's kind of like deleted scenes. So like these film these scenes were deleted for a reason. <laughs> um, the, the, like I said, the Buffalo scenes look good. But the other thing of note is this was a film that was adapted for the screen and directed by Richard Brooks. So he had he this is bef- this is right after Blackboard Jungle, and then later, of course, known for films like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Elmer Gantry, Sweet Bird of Youth, The Professionals, and In Cold Blood. So, kind of middle of the pack, Richard Brooks, and uh, and I can say that this was actually for Robert Taylor and not a John Wayne throwaway. Mm-hmm. So, okay, um, moving on to a little bit. Uh, I think I have it here. Hopefully, I do. Oh, I don't. This hot screen action here at Film Sociology, here with Chris Lloyd, and it's an excuse to play this. Doing our uh, the annual show of uh, dead people we like. Uh, <laughs> there's a there's a pretty big one this we week. We don't yeah. have time for dead people we don't like. Yes. Thank you Doing again. Our... Thank you again for that, Chris. Um, okay, I guess uh, the start, and it is in no particular order, but um, but Robert Osborne, who was an actor. And and a journalist, but we'll always know him as and love him as the guy who talked before movies on TCM. Yeah, and the the funny thing about him is, you know, he was a real advocate for people seeing movies in the movie theater, seeing a movie on the big screen. And of course, the irony of being that you know he did it on television. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, I'm not complaining because uh, TCM is such an amazing. I mean, I'm so many films that I've been able to see that I've only been able to see them yep. there. They're not available on home video. Thank you, TCM Underground and your other late night ones. Yeah, um, I, I typically go through a thing where, like, I'll do like you know a couple of weeks ahead on my DVR and see what's playing, and you know I'll find fifteen movies to yep. record. But then you know it'll take me six months to get through them. I know, and then and then I feel bad. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get rid of these. I'll try. I'll try. They'll, they'll play it again in about six months. I'll try. Um, I don't get rid of them actually. Really? Uh, my I, I finally had to get rid of something because our DVR went on the fritz and and Ooh. we had traded in for the new one. And I asked them, can you transfer it? And they're like, no, it's no, not a it's not. not a phone. Yeah, I've got some stuff on our DVR right now that's been. I got one called Libel Lady with um, uh, Spencer Tracy. I, I think Ooh. it's been on there for about. Oh, at least a year and a half. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to <clears throat> see what my old. What's your oldest DVR? We'll have to send that into. To <laughs> what's your oldest DVR? Um, Blue, other one is Blue Dahlia. I think I watched everything except for Libel Lady and Blue oh, Dahlia, but now I've got like fifteen more that my wife's are like these are taking up space. So, so thank you, thank you, Robert. Um, and and that, there's a there's a weird connection because sometimes what I watch is based on current events. For instance, um, Puerto Rican actress Miriam Colon passed away on March third at the age of eighty. 
She formed the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater, received the Presidential National Medal of the Arts in 2015 from President Obama. And uh, the thing that probably she is best known for is playing Mother uh, Montana in Brian De Palma's Scarface. So she got got to yell at Al Pacino and he didn't yell back. And there's something to be said about it. And she has she has two really solid scenes, but her credits go all the way back to the early '50s. Of course, a lot of TV and and a few films of note. Um, the uh, and it was you know I I had a Blu-ray of Scarface and hadn't watched it, so my first full day off, I decided to plop in Scarface uh, again. It's it's Brian De Palma. It's three hours and and it's got Al Pacino. But also in the D, in the Blu-ray was the DVD of the original 1930s Scarface with Paul Muni, which also had an introduction by Robert Osborne. So there, there's a connection there. But uh, Miriam also starred in uh, Thunder Island, The Appaloosa, back in 1966, um, Backroads, City of Hope, as well as Lone Star. She's great in Lone Star. I'm, I love John Sayles, and I really, really love uh, Lone Star, playing her playing Mercedes Cruz. Uh, all the pretty horses, goal the dream begins. So, uh, so no, we we salute. But it was fun watching her uh, berate Al Pacino. Um, the other one she is in, she has one scene as a as a redheaded barmaid, and it was another Blu-ray I had purchased and had not watched. And now you, because it's out on Criterion on Blu-ray, you can throw away all the crappy transfers. But Marlon Brando's One-Eyed Jacks. Yeah. Um, which is directed by and starring Marlon Brando. Of course, it was originally supposed to be written by Sam Peckinpah, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and there was tensions. And, and the behind-the-scenes stories are just as fascinating. But it's And, and I know he uh, Brando diso, dis, disassociated himself with the film, and they took it away from him, and the studio cut it up. It's still pretty good. I know, I know what Brando was going for if he had his way, not just the five-hour uh, cut, but a darker ending. But it, I think it's still a really solid Western. I think it's a great film. I think it's half a step down from a masterpiece. Um, and it's just some really vivid um, uh, performances. Uh, and, uh, you know, like uh, the, the basic setup is like a young gunslinger uh, is, you know, involved in some banditry with an older gunslinger played by... Carl Malden. Carl Malden. Uh, whose name is Dad, or, or yeah, calls there's, him his there's dad. a little yeah, there's a little father son esque relationships, yeah. and there's you know you could say well you know Brando's tapping into his own childhood. Yeah, and you know, and uh, of course Brando doing his affect various affectations. So when he says his name, it comes it comes up more like Dad, like that. It's like the, it's like yeah. Dad. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, so then you know he he go basically you know goes to prison to you know takes one for them. Uh, and it comes out years later to find out that the friend is now a marshal in a town and has a sort of adopted daughter that he's sweet on. And that's and- a little weird. And, and, again, that's something you didn't really expect back then. It was also a, a Western set in Monterey, California. Yeah. So we're ha- we have a Western with with the ocean, which is, which is an interesting look. He's also surrounded himself, and they were already hired, but solid performers like uh, Slim Pickens, Ben Johnson, Timothy Carey. Um. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a really, really good Western that's kind of been tarnished because stories of Brando doing a lot of long improvisational takes and waiting for the right waves, which, by the way, he he waited. It was worth it. It's a great shot of him by the water. Yeah. Um. So anyway, that is that was another excuse to watch that. Uh, producer Fred Weintraub passed away March 5th at the age of 88. Producer of such films as... 1972's Rage with George C. Scott, 
Enter the Dragon, Black Belt Jones, that needs a Criterion treatment, both of them really. Truck Turner, The Ultimate Warrior, that's another one that's, I'm surprised has not come out by Warner Archives. An action film with Max von Sydow and Yul Brenner. Um, Hot Potato, which is a sequel to Enter the Dragon. Tom Horn, Battle Creek Brawl, which was Jackie Chan's first attempt for stardom in Hollywood in the late 70s, early 80s. High Road to China. He produced Jim Cotta. Thank you for that. Uh, the China O'Brien films. Born to Ride, an action film starring John Stamos. So, fun drive-in fare in the 70s. Thanks, Fred Weintraub. <laughs> And then uh, just heard about this right before we recorded, but uh, but author Robert James Waller, who wrote the novel The Bridges of Madison County. I read The Bridges of Madison County. I, I was told it is a fast read, which it is. But but first off, I guess, you know, salute because I we like the salute artists here on the show. Their contributions to the world is noted, even if it's something as sappy as Bridges of Madison County. But I think extra credit also needs to go to Richard Legravance, who did the screenplay adaptation. He also did The Fisher King, The Ref, The Horse Whisperer, among other things. And uh, and he was able to scrape quite a bit of sap off of that novel and make a really solid romantic drama with, of all people, of course, Mer- well, Meryl Streep playing an Italian housewife <laughs> and Clint Eastwood, who also directed the film, as the uh, the man of her of her desires, it's yep. a really solid grown up drama. People don't remember now, but I mean that that book was just a phenomenon. It was such a huge. It seller. was the notebook of its day. Yeah, I mean it was it was massive, massive uh, book. And the fact that of all people, Clint Eastwood was not only going to direct in it, was going to star in it, and it. Um, some guys had issues with that because they only wanted to see Clint. You know. Save the president and shoot people, and yeah. uh, you know how how dare he? Uh, you know, it, it, by the way, real men don't have cards yeah. indicating and what they are. He, he, truthfully, he was a bit old to play the role. Well, but. sure, but and, and yes, and, and well, Robert Redford wasn't available, and Clint said, "Screw that, I'm starring because uh, yeah. I'm directing." Yeah. But it's really well, and I guess Meryl Streep told the story of he Clint's character has a big scene, and he turns his he turns his face away from the camera, and Meryl asked, "Well." Why'd you do that? And and he's like, nobody wants to see me do that. <laughs> and he, but he, you know, to be fair, a few years later, he winds up doing it in front of the camera for Million Dollar Baby. So it, yeah. it's all right. But but I that is uh, you could do a lot worse when it comes to to weepy weepy romantic films. And uh, so anyway, it's out there. Go go check that out. How are things over at the film yap? Good. We're uh, you know. Sam Watermeyer, who you had on last week, has been, yes. I don't know if you talked about it last week, but he's been doing a uh, a new series, The Long and Short of It, where he seeks out lo- films with long running times, usually that he has not yet seen before, uh, and he's just sort of tagging that. So he's done Gandhi, and he's done The English Patient. This week he did another really good two-hour film, except it's three hours, and that's Meet Joe, Meet Black. Joe Black. And yes, he is defended every minute of it. He has a nice write-up. He he also has an emotional attachment to it with his uh, with his better half. Yes, so I, I can't argue that his girlfriend Jen um, has been doing an original drawing um, as the artwork to go with each one of these. It's like Criterion. Ones. Yeah, it really is. So if you've not checked out Sam Watermeyer's The Long and Short of It, uh, go to the Film Yap and do so. And uh, just go to the Film Yap in general. Uh, what are you writing about next? Uh, I, well, you know, I always get behind on my reeling backward columns. Well, not behind, but. You know, like I'm working on them. I try and generally get about two months ahead. Right. So, like, you know, right now I'm trying to write the stuff for April. Okay. Uh, but, like, I get behind 
um, when the award season comes around or when the film festivals, because we're watching, you know, a bunch of movies for those. That's kind of why I like to do it, so that I have that buffer for when the time. So uh, I'm trying to think. So I just did back to back the hand from 1960 and the hand from 1981 because I I I saw the hand. In general, I try and steer myself towards movies I haven't seen before, but uh, this is a film that I saw once 35 years ago uh, and haven't seen it since, but it has a strong memory in my mind. Uh, And so I was trying to get it, and I'm going through my Netflix thing, and I saw, oh, here's a 1960 version, thinking, oh, they, you know, Oliver Stone based his film on that. So I got that and watched it, and it's this. Terrible. Worse, worse, British than, worse pers- than Oliver Stone's hand. Yeah, it's like eighty minutes long, but it's it's like a crime procedural where they're talking about the hand instead of you know, and, and they cast all these British guys who looked exactly alike, and they're trying. And it's you know like a nineteen sixty British film, so they're trying to out diffident each other. Oh, uh, and boy, so then of course I had to go back and actually do the Michael Caine movie and yeah some hot Michael Caine acting action in that one you yeah. have to check that out alright ladies and gentlemen some words to live by Soylent Grid is people Zardas has spoken Chris thanks for hanging out my pleasure as always go see a good movie there's plenty out there you deserve it you're listening to Film Sociology a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org good afternoon Fort Myers good afternoon California good afternoon Michigan